Thanks, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Like Steve, when I saw I was preaching on this passage, I thought, four verses, great. And then I read them. <laughs> uh, Lucy and I moved into our house just over a year ago. And when we first moved in, we assumed there wouldn't be any other tenants living there. But to our horror, what we discovered was we were not alone. Although it wasn't in our contract, it seems our purchase involved the care and tending to of a cockroach plague. And excited by our new dwelling, we thought little of it initially, hopeful that we would overcome the unwelcome guests in short time. After settling in some weeks, we grew tired of seeing the roaches crawling over and through our stuff. I think um, I put our entire cutlery drawer through the dishwasher about 10 times. It was time to do something about this problem. We began to put baits around the house in full assurance that this would do the job, uh, but it didn't. When the guy installing our solar climbed his ladder to enter the manhole into the roof, he lifted the cover, and as he tilted it, a shower of cockroach poo rained down over him. He later said to me, you have a real problem. <laughs> he said, I've never seen so much cockroach poo in a roof in all my days installing solar. When we put it into perspective, this is definitely a first world problem, but for us new homeowners, it was deflating. This was our new home, and it was contaminated and infested. How could we live here amongst such impurity? It was time to call for assistance. And when the pest control company came and they were spraying, they revealed just how invasive that this problem was. As they sprayed, cockroach after cockroach fled their hiding spaces, desperately trying to escape the poison. Edith was beside herself with fear. I've never seen her screech like that before, and she's never been the same with small critters since. And to give you a picture of just how extensive this problem was, if you didn't have that already, when the workers removed one of the drawers in our kitchen bench, it fell apart. I picked up one of the sliders and out fell cockroach poo from inside, falling into a heap about four centimetres high. How had we been living in this? How had the previous owners been living in this? Thankfully, the spray worked and our house was liberated from this plague. There was about a week of collecting dead cockroaches and throwing them in the trash, but we've only seen one or two since. We successfully banished them from our house. For now, anyway. Our passage today reveals a similar problem, an incessant problem calling for a thorough and definitive solution. The cockroaches would have done well to heed our warning of those baits initially, and so too should we heed the warning given in this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to not disregard your word, but to take it seriously and to use it as a guide to greater faithfulness in you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a Bible passage that's always sent shivers down my spine. It's Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. And the first part of it, which is on the screen, says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It makes you gulp, or it made me gulp. 
I remember my first in-depth encounter with this passage in 2016. I was driving to work listening to an Ask Pastor John podcast, and someone had written in asking the meaning of this passage, and Pastor John explained it, that an eager, deliberate, willing, persistent, and settled pattern of sin meant that there was no sacrifice for sin left. I became quite concerned. The permanence of the judgment spoken about in this passage was frightful. It's definitive, it's resolute, and unlike other passages, there seems to be no changing this outcome. Well, after preparing this sermon, there are now two passages that send shivers down my spine. Hebrews 10 and Zechariah 5, 1-4. Let's take a look at some of the detail in our Zechariah reading for today to see what I mean. We'll go through it. The passage begins with a large scroll, approximately nine metres long and five metres wide. Unlike a normal scroll, uh, this one is too large for anyone to hold in their hands. And when the Lord Almighty sends it out, verse 4, it goes out over the whole land, verse 3. It's like a flying billboard of God's word, or perhaps a more modern reference for us. It's an extremely oversized phone with a Facebook or Instagram feed showing this post from God. At the point of its size, it's an important message. In verse 3, it's revealed that on this scroll is a message which is a curse. Now, I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but all the commentaries I reviewed explain this word curse as a sworn commitment to do something, an oath or an agreement. In this case, it's a sworn commitment to do something negative, to punish. In other words, there's something binding and final and resolute about this curse. There are no second chances. It will be followed through with. Last weekend, we'd planned to swim in the pool with Edith and then go for a bike ride at one of the beaches. Before hopping in the pool, I said to her, when it's time to get out of the pool, you need to hop out straight away. If you listen and do that, we will go to the beach for a bike ride. If you don't hop out straight away, we won't be going. There's a promise and a commitment for good, but there's also a commitment to the negative. She didn't do what I asked straight away, and we followed through on our oath, and we didn't go to the beach. The parents were very unhappy about that. The commitment or oath that is made in this passage is that every thief and everyone who swears falsely by the Lord's name will be banished. On an initial reading, these seem like two arbitrary commandments that are singled out, They are, of course, part of the Ten Commandments, Commandment 8, you shall not steal, and Commandment 3, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. They are, however, representative of all Ten Commandments. That is, they encapsulate both the vertical relationship we have with God, uh, Commandments 1 through 4, and our horizontal relationship we have with each other or our neighbours, Commandments 5 through 10. In other words, these two commandments represent the greatest And second greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 36 to 39. Now, given that chapter three, which we heard about last week, dealt with the cleansing of sin already, it's unlikely that these verses are referring yet again to the same thing. There's no mention of repentance or second chance that's been dealt with and we've moved on in these visions. Instead, I think we are dealing with the notion of persistent sin 
or continued willful sin, like in the Hebrews 10 chapter or passage. Zechariah's visions and prophecies are intended for an audience of God's chosen people, and this curse is reserved for those amongst the chosen who persist in unfaithfulness, such as the people of Judah were prior to exile. Who, therefore, is the intended audience of this message today? Or similarly, it's directed at those who profess a faith but persist in willful and deliberate unfaithfulness. As for the consequence of this curse, we're told in verse 3, it will banish the offenders. And verse 4, it will enter the house of the offenders and remain there, destroying it completely, timber and stone. We get the clear idea that whomever this curse is brought upon does not stand a chance. There are two pictures created for us. The first is banishment. They will be cast out of God's place. It really means being cast out of God's presence, like Adam and Eve were, or removed from the covenant and placed outside of God's salvation. The second picture is complete destruction, or again, total eradication and removal from God's community. Like the Hebrews passage, this is very confronting. There is a permanence of judgment. There's no coming back from this banishment or destruction. This curse is unyielding, it's definitive, and it's final. Such is the seriousness with which God approaches sin and unfaithfulness. His holiness demands this kind of justice. And the passage makes it abundantly clear that what he desires is a faithful and obedient people. Well, so far in Zechariah, we've read of God's jealousy for his people and his plans to regather them to himself. We've read of his plans to seek justice against those who punished his people too much, his plans to dwell amongst them once more, his promised prosperity and comfort, his promise of making them a great nation again. He revealed that they would be cleansed, sustained and protected by the Spirit, and he promised the Messiah. Yes, the book has been filled with such hope. Yet here is this passage. It's a change in tack. And we cannot disregard passages like this in God's word, as short as they may be and as fearful as they may be. It is still God's word, and he intended for us to hear it. It is most definitely a grave warning for God's people, and Zechariah's audience were to take it seriously, as are we. Now, when preparing this sermon, I really wrestled with this passage, trying to understand what to make of it, how to understand its placement here amongst these visions of hope, and to work out how this passage fits into the bigger picture of the book. And that brings us to our next point, uh, the new Jerusalem. I think there are two reasons why we change tack here, and both reasons give us motivation for pursuing holiness in response to these warnings in this passage. The first reason is that through Zechariah, God is preparing his people for him to dwell amongst them. Following the exile, the Lord Almighty is restoring a new Jerusalem, regathering his people and making them into a great nation yet again where he can dwell. For that to happen, they need to heed his warning and live faithfully, not in obstinate and stubborn unfaithfulness as they did in the many years leading to their exile. That's what he requires of, him, of them. And it's like the house that Lucy and I purchased. For us to live there, it needed to be made clean. For those of us today who call ourselves Christians, it's similar. Uh, when we were purchased with the blood of Christ, 
we were made clean. But Christ's work doesn't stop there. Christ's work continues to work in us to make us holy and more like himself. And Zechariah 5 warns us against denying the Spirit's work in us. The image the Bible gives is that of a bride being prepared for her husband, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, and that should be on the screen. A Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ is doing this work in us so that when the day comes for the Lord's return, we are spotless, blameless, without blemish, and ready to dwell with the Lord Almighty instead of being banished and utterly destroyed. And we pick up on this in our New Testament passage in Revelation 21, starting at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Just as God wants to bless the people of Zechariah's time, he wants to bless us. He wants us to be his holy, chosen people dwelling with him for all eternity in the new Jerusalem. The second reason for the change in tack of these visions is one of reputation, I think. The church and God is brought into disrepute by those who profess a faith but stubbornly persist or insist on pursuing unholiness, be it in secret or in private. There are many shameful examples in the church's history that tarnish the reputation of God amongst unbelievers. And while we seek to remain faithful, to obtain the treasures Christ has stored for us in heaven, we must remember too, our pursuit of holiness also has implications in this world. In Zechariah, we see multiple times God's desire to make his chosen people into a great nation again, so that other nations may want to come and entreat the Lord. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 11. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 10. And we'll see it again in chapter 8, verse 22. As Christians, we're given the great commission in Matthew 28 to make disciples of every nation. By pursuing faithfulness, sorry, by pursuing faithfulness in our commitment to the Lord, we are shining a light which glorifies God and draws others to him. A faithful people are a beacon to the Lord. So while there's an implication for the individual in these verses, there's also an implication for us as a church, even here at NHA. Our collective faithfulness in the Lord can draw others to him and will bring glory to our Father. So given the grave warning in this passage, what shall we do? How shall we respond? When I read Zechariah, uh, when I read Zechariah, what jumps off the page for me is that God truly treasures his people. He wants to dwell amongst his chosen people for eternity And we can have great confidence that by the blood of Jesus, we get to enter the most holy place. Such was God's compassion and grace that he opened this way to us despite our sin and rebellion. It's a free gift, but he requires true and genuine faithfulness. And so in response to the promise of blessing, we must purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit 
perfecting holiness out of reverence for God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. In other words, we must root out sin in our life, find it, attack it, and purge it with the strength of the Lord. We must allow the sanctifying work of the Spirit to change us, allow God's truth, his word, to rebuke, correct, and train us in righteousness. We must pursue holiness unswervingly, seeking first his kingdom in all things and drawing near to him. And we must repent, particularly of persistent and stubborn sin. Now, I cannot pretend to understand what every example of persistent sin would look like in different individuals, but without judgment and with great compassion, I can empathise and understand that there are those who struggle with this stubborn problem. In chapter 4 last week, we read the verse, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It can be applied here too. If you are struggling with a stubborn sin that you cannot shake, don't attempt to deal with it in your own strength or by your own power. The Lord will help you. And please reach out to someone here in the church. The Bible calls us to spur on and encourage one another in our pursuit of holiness. Come down for prayer after the service, reach out on a care and communication card, or simply pull someone aside after the service. But what's more, this curse hasn't taken hold yet. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There is still time for repentance. But one day that time will have expired. The day for doing something about it is now. These four verses in Zechariah contain a fearful warning, which can cause one to tremble, and it did for me. When the Lord returns, he will follow through on this oath, this curse. But when the warnings in these passages are accompanied by the assurances of salvation for those who faithfully profess his name, I am encouraged to go on working out my salvation, even if that is with fear and trembling. Lucy and I cleaned our house, banishing all cockroaches so we could live there. The Lord will come and clean house one day too. I want to be ready, and I want to avoid the judgments that these passages contain. So I repent, and I persevere. And we're left with the question, will you be ready? Thanks, Craig.